Mimeo Talk of the Trade, sharing marketing and sales success stories. Hey everyone, Mike McNary here with another episode of Mimeo's Talk of the Trade, a show where we share marketing and sales success stories. Our hope is that the conversations on this show with subject matter experts and sales and marketing leaders lead to some useful takeaways for you, our audience, and help you apply it to your revenue mission uh, back at the office. So quick announcement before we get into the episode. Uh, we are now available on all of the major podcast sources, including Spotify and Apple. So please find us on your favorite podcatcher and subscribe, follow, um, and please feel free to rate and tell us what you think as well. We've appreciated all the feedback so far and uh, all the enthusiasm from our listeners. So thank you for that. And uh, we also encourage you to tell your friends and colleagues to do the same. So, all right. Today's episode, I'm really excited about. It's titled, Bold from the Start, Characteristics of CRO and CMO Legends. We're going to talk about early behaviors and characteristics that led to CRO and CMO success later in life. Our guest for today is Justin Schreiber. Justin is the Chief Marketing Officer at People.ai and host of the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Justin, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Mike, it's great to be here. Appreciate having you. And uh, for those folks out there in, in our audience that don't know much about your organization, you want to tell us a little bit about People.ai? Absolutely. So People.ai is a cloud-based application. We do three things. First of all, we grab all the business activity that people are generating through email and calendar. And secondly, we use AI to make sense of it and figure out where it should go in CRM. And we drop it in CRM. And then the last thing that we do is we make you smarter when you're trying to do your job as a salesperson by surfacing insights. Well, that's great. I'm sure a lot of uh, companies are taking great advantage of that. You guys have been uh, seeing a lot of business in the last year. How has it been for you guys during the pandemic? It's actually been very strong for us. There's been a huge shift, obviously, as people move to the remote working environment. Uh, managers in particular feel like they're losing touch with their teams and are struggling to find a way to connect with them and continue to coach them and kind of help them tap into their potential. What we're doing is helping to surface all of the, as I said, business activity that salespeople, that marketers are generating. And that gives leaders a signal that they can use to figure out, hey, you're off track right now, or you're on track, keep it going. Whereas before those conversations happen, as you're doing a flyby, as you're in a yep. conference room, now in a virtual world, people are like, well, how do we have that kind of a dynamic? And so we're making that possible. That's great. I mean, I, I think everyone would agree. There's so much you can pick up uh, in the office when you're having those kind of in-between calls, interactions, or overhearing, or just the day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, connectivity with your teammates and team members and not having that. You need tools to really fill in the gaps. So that's awesome. Uh, you've run sales, marketing, and product organizations in your career, Justin. What's your favorite part uh, of your job now as CMO? Now that I've run all of those organizations, I really view a business kind of as, a, as, as an organism with many different dimensions to it. Yep. Whereas before you know, I started off my, my career in product, it was like, it's all about product. We just got to do a killer product <laughs> and then we're good. Right. And now I realize having sold products and market, marketed products that you have to have a tightly integrated system, if you will, to make it all work. And I love to draw on the experience I've had in all of these different functions to really build something special and, and viable. And one of the things I enjoy, you know, a lot of marketers might not say this, 
I love to sit down with our head of sales and solve problems together. I've been in his seat. I know the pressure that comes with that. And it's really enjoyable for me to say, hey, I get it. You know, I know why you're hammering me on this and, and let's figure it out together. And I found that the level of empathy that I've been able to generate just because of those experiences has helped me to make meaningful connections. It's made me a better marketer. It's made me more open to getting feedback and input and made me a little less sensitive, I guess, when people come at me hard and say, hey, you're not doing your job. Like I get I get why they feel that way. Um, right. So, yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's being able to bring the whole system together. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of uh, ways that somebody can be a, a great marketer or a great marketing partner. But uh, I think a common thread that I see here and there is that folks with sales backgrounds kind of understand that partnership back and uh, the back and forth between marketing and sales a little bit better. And it's one way that you can get a leg up and maybe be uh, uh, more productive or have a more uh, holistic philosophy. Right. That's right. That's so right. Um, that's interesting. Uh, pivoting quickly to your Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast, uh, you got over 20 episodes of what I think is really great content. Um, how did all that get started? Well, Mike, this has been just an absolute blast for me. We started off the podcast last year and we had some relationships as I pulled the company with some, some really spectacular individuals. The chairman of the board for Microsoft, John Thompson, uh, was one of those individuals, uh, the CMO out at Okta, um, Ryan Carlson was another. And we said, wow, these guys have great stories. But more importantly, there's a backstory here that they don't get to share a lot. Right. We'd love to explore the backstories and try to connect that to the great things that they've done professionally. It was kind of a, a thesis or a hypothesis that we had. So we got in there and just kind of ran the inter interviews based on that format. And there were some amazing things that came out on these podcasts, stories about when they were kids, adversity that they'd fought through. But what always fascinated me was the relationship between what happened to them as kids, who they were as kids, and who you knew as the professional. And once we got a couple of these in the can, we were like, there's something really special here. It's unique. It's, it's different than what we're hearing in other places. Let's run with this. And uh, that was kind of the inception of it all. Yeah. And, and I've listened to quite a few, not all at this stage. And I, I think you get into a lot on the show, which I think is fantastic, right? I think it, it, it goes across a broad range of topics and you do dig deep, which I think um, is a strength of the show. And I recommend that our entire audience go check it out. So let's talk about our episode today. We're going to talk a little bit about early behaviors and the characteristics that have led CRO and CMO to, to success later in life, right? And um, you've had the opportunity to work with, talk to, and interview highly successful CROs and CMOs. And doing that over time, you've uncovered, uncovered pretty interesting commonality in their approaches in the early stages of their careers. Why don't you tell us uh, what you tend to see over and over again? What's caught your eye? Yeah, you might call this episode the making of the legends. Right. I like it's that. been fascinating, though. I'm on every week with different personalities. So I have the opportunity, obviously, to go deep with each of these individuals, but then to pull back and start to make connections between one person and another. And I've identified three characteristics that I hear come out again and again and again, to the point where it's, it's really, for me, been inspirational and kind of formed the way I think about my own life and, and trajectory. I've got five kids, so I'm a, I'm a busy person wow. outside. Yeah, of I'd imagine. 
But I share these stories with my kids too, because I want them to know that there is a way that you can be successful. And, uh, and, and these lessons are really important to get out there. So anyway, um, the three lessons that, that I take away, number one, incredible grit. And to some extent, grit can be learned, but it's also a byproduct of just this, the environments that these folks grow up in and the circumstances in which they find themselves. The second is they have a formula. It's not that they came out of the gate with the formula. It kind of evolved over time. But by the time they made it to the C-suite, they had a very well-developed formula which had been tested and proven. And then the third thing is they learned how to inspire. And I, I deliberately used that word learned because in most cases, these people started off and they weren't very good leaders. In fact, in many cases, they were horrible <laughs> leaders. They figured it out. And I love that because so many times you just think charisma is something that you either have it or you don't. And I, I firmly believe after having talked to these folks that you can definitely develop an inspirational approach to leadership. Yeah. That's really interesting, right? Because the inspiration is a component of it, right? You want to lead by example, and you also also show results that people can get behind and, and believe in. But you've got to have something that um, some they call it gravitas, or you know, just some sort of effect on your audience and your team members that make them want to follow you into the battle of sales or marketing or whatever end of the business you might be working on. So. That's right. Um, That's right. It's really important. So, you know, uh, we're talking about grit formula and being inspiring. Was there some sort of aha moment, right? You're interviewing a lot of folks. You've had a, you know, a, a career in sales and marketing. Was this something that became apparent to you earlier on, or was it a byproduct of these more recent conversations? When did it all kind of come together for you? There was a story that Brian McCarthy, he's the CRO at at Rubric now great guy. He was the CRO at ThoughtSpot before that. And he shared a story with me as a kid. I think he was six years old. His father passed away and he tells, he talks about sitting on the front porch of their house as a six-year-old with his mom. He had a number of siblings that were kind of all huddled around as they were nailing the foreclosure leaflet mm -hmm. to the front door. And he was like, you know, I was in that moment and I was looking at what was going on and I knew what was going on. I was six, but I knew what was going on. And my mom put her arm around me and I had my siblings around me and I knew we were going to make it through. She instilled in me from a young age that life is hard, but we're going to make it through. And, um, and then he had a flashback to an experience that happened to him just before his dad passed away, maybe six months before. His dad worked a couple jobs, did not have a lot of money. One of his jobs, he was a janitor at the local school. It was a Catholic school, so it was a private school. And to get his kids in, he would mop the floors. And he would take Brian to the uh, school at night sometimes. And Brian would sit up there on one of the desks, and he'd watch his dad mop the floor. And on one evening, his dad came up to him, and he said, Hey, Brian, you see that floor? And Brian said, Yeah. And he said, What do you notice about that floor? And Brian goes, well, Pop, it's pretty clean. Hmm. That's right. It is clean. And he goes, that's clean enough for me to put my name on it. Always remember, when you do a job, put your name on it. And that story, when he told that story, just the power of the story, but in the context of what he went through, losing 
a parent at a young age getting kicked out of his house. And, and there were several other stories like that. It was like, man, you know, that is the, that is the raw material of a great leader. Um, and, and so after I heard that story, I started to listen a little more carefully, carefully and started to link together his experience with the experiences that I heard from other folks. And I realized that, uh, the circumstances that we come from truly do shape us. And it's a combination of the circumstances and who we are inherently. Um, when you get that mixed right, it just brings out the best in people. Yeah. And that's interesting. Thinking about how these leaders and people in you know, any position of life are so influenced by these, you know, watershed moments so early on. Right. Yeah. And if, uh, you know, I guess, um, transition properly or if leveraged in the right way later on or you know get the right perspective either from someone outside or you know like as you said internally uh, can be really effective to um, driving you uh, you know into your career and into success ultimately so um, I, I think also as a as a parent and also as someone who's leading teams and, and helping people to develop um, you know we we live in a society where there is such an urgency around protection you you look around and and there are so many conversations about protection you know editor editorial note i am vaccinated i believe in vaccines to yeah. protect myself i'm not going to go on a diatribe about you know the <laughs> political issues around that but i will say that you know as a parent there is so much impetus around, you know, protect your children, help your children to not get exposed to those bad. And I've realized that, that some level of adversity and opposition in life is not only important, but essential to the forming of, of the human. And if we, if we do too, if we put too much bubble wrap around people, we rob them of the opportunity later in life to really achieve the potential that they have. Yeah. Listen, I mean, how are you going to build up any sort of thick skin or resilience, right? If you've yeah. never had that adversity or any obstacle that you've had to overcome, right? There was um, another, uh, there was another great interview I did, a woman named Shelly Archambault. Shelly is uh, one of the first black female CEOs in Silicon Valley. She took a company called Metric Stream to the Heights, um, invented the segment governance, risk, and compliance. And she grew up in Los Angeles had some really, um, really sad stories to hear as a little girl walking to school, having people throw bottles at her on their, mm. on, on their way buying cars. And the way that her parents responded to that was interesting. They said, Shelly, you're going to run into this and we're not going to be able to change that. So you just got to get used to it. However, it's not right. And when you're here at home, you are supported we stand behind you 100% and we're going to help you to be successful. So again, there was a lot of adversity and opposition in her life. Now she, she ended up obviously becoming a CEO. What was fascinating about that is when she was in high school, she had her, her eyes set on being a CEO and her dad at the time worked for IBM. That was the tech company that she knew. So she decided she was going to be the CEO of IBM. I like it. And nobody told her that was a crazy dream. And then she got a job as an executive assistant, uh, late high school, early college. And she realized that as that executive assistant, she had the phone directory for all of IBM. So she started dialing up the executives and she said, my name's Shelly. 
I'm down here in such and such a department. I'd love to grab 30 minutes and just learn about what you did to get to where you are. Right. And um, people took the call and they met with her. They loved the they loved the aggressiveness that she exhibited. And that was her first education in how to become an executive. What was more important though, is she learned an important lesson, which is if you don't know how to do something, you need to ask for help. And people are more than willing to give you that help. Fast forward to the point where she got to metric stream. She'd never been a CEO before. There were lots of issues she had to work through. And many times when she had no idea what she was doing, rather than trying to wing it or pretend that she knew what she was doing, she started calling people up for help. She built a network of people. They would meet on a regular basis. Hey, we got a raise. How do you raise? What should I worry about? We got an issue on our balance sheet. How should I address this? How do I think about it? That, and, and this is the formula part, that formula of number one, acknowledging, I don't know how to do this. Number two, having the courage to reach out and ask for help. And then number three, trusting your network and doing what they say was the formula that she used to become the CEO, turn the company around. She now sits on the board of Verizon. She's on the board of Okta. Um, she's on the board of Nordstrom. So she's now applying this formula and helping other people to apply the same formula. Yeah, that's really interesting and amazing how far you can get if you acknowledge what it is that you don't know or you're not expert at, right? That's right. And you decide that you're going to leverage other people for help and and have some humble, uh, uh, you know, ness in your approach, right? Yeah. It yeah. also, you know what? I think it also is a testament to people respect, get up and go, right? And also an intellectual curiosity. I think you're more prone to get that assistance or partnership when people see that you really want it and you're really seeking it out on your own, right? Totally agree. So we talked a little bit so far about the grit, right? Being formed in many cases by the adversity early on in life or just the experiences that one might encounter. And now we're kind of talking a little bit about the formula. You've talked about Shelley's. What other sort of formulas or maybe one really good example that was, uh, you know, stuck out to you um, would be a good example of, you know, this second tenet of your, you know, philosophy around success? This is a formula that I've actually heard multiple tech CROs cite as a foundation for the success of the sales organization that they build. Um, It's a little bit old school, but it has a, a modern spin to it. And uh, Chris Degnan, who's the CRO out at Snowflake, laid it out for me in a very articulate way. And, and it actually, again, came from his background. So Chris, Chris went from a place early in his childhood where he had everything he wanted, a fluent family, well-respected, and literally woke up one, one day and it was all gone. And his family was in financial ruin and he was kind of on his own with his mom at that point. And so he literally, it was a riches to rag story. And he, he came away with a reality that if I don't make my way through life, I got nothing. And, uh, he talks about his first sales job and he was out there and this was, this was during the, you know, the dot com era when everything was, was bust. And he had a, basically a BDR job, business development rep. Yep. And he hit the phones and he was able to back into, if I do this many dials, then I'll be able to get this many people on the phone and this many people will want to have another interview. And this, so he actually did the math to figure out how many dials he needed to do to correlate to how much revenue do I need to generate? And then he had the discipline to sit in front of that phone until he'd done the dials. His friends were all out at the bar. Sometimes it was getting late. 
his friends were sleeping in. And I was like, Chris, you know, as a, as a young salesperson, why didn't you follow the crowd? He's like, I knew if I followed the crowd, I would be back on my mom's couch. Yep. And I couldn't, I couldn't let myself do that. So for him, it wasn't so much about making a lot of money. It was about staying off of his mom's couch. Well, from there, the other, the other fascinating thing about Chris is he had a reading disability. So the guy, when he took the SAT, they gave him eight hours to take the SAT. He always struggled. And, but he got really good at skimming things and just finding the key points. So from there, he went on to Informatica. And he's like, name of the game for me at Informatica is you had to read the contracts that were in place. And based on the contracts, I could identify opportunities. And I was really good at skimming documents because I couldn't read them. Right. And I would just zero in on the, the terms of the agreement or whatever. And he ended up making his number by basically scanning the contracts and then coming up with a solution based on what the customer had already purchased. So what's, what's interesting is each step in his career, he's building on this foundation and the foundation becomes broader and broader. And then from there, the next step was I got into management and I needed to put some systems in place that allowed me to determine quantity and quality. Because at Informatica, I realized that it's about quality, not just quantity. At first, I was just hammering the phones, right. and that's not going to get it done. And so then he built out this elaborate set of systems in order to um, measure, hey, are, is there a skill problem here? Is the quality low, or is it just a will problem? And he was able to really zero in on that. And then the last piece of the foundation is he's like, all right, now I knew the volume of work that needed to be done. I knew the nature of that work. Now I needed to understand the profile of the person to do that. Because what I realized is I was bringing a lot of people in. They weren't meshing with the system. And there was a certain kind of person that was working great with it. So he was able to refine his understanding of the profile and really zero in on a couple of key questions that he would ask during the interview process that would allow him to figure out who worked best for that system. Um, now, the... That that quality and quantity, the definition of that, it'll change as you talk from one CRO to the next. Of course, yeah. The profile will change depending on the system that's been set up. What's almost always the same is there is a very well-defined understanding of what is it I need these people to do, the quantity of it, what is the quality or the standard that I need to set, and they are very explicit about it. You know if you're meeting the threshold or not. And then what is the hiring profile? And again, they've listed it out in excruciating detail. Not only that, but they know how to interview and zero in on exactly those qualities. And that three-part formula for sales, I hear that repeated again and again and again. Yeah. And I can say uh, from personal experience, that's something that you see not just in your uh, travels, but you know, a lot of the people think that way, right? And it starts with early on, I think, in those introductory positions, right? If you're at the individual contributor level, maybe an SDR, BDR, or you know, maybe an SMBAE, it's doing the math, right? First, what do I have to get done? You know, if I need this much revenue, well, I'm going to need this many opportunities and I have this sort of close rate and if I need to self-gen this many and what sort of time does it take to do all those things? And the people that are most methodical about it and really look into the detail um, to make sure that their system is built properly are the ones that are going to consistently perform and not have those shortfalls. That's absolutely right. right. Yep. And then they have that infrastructure that I'm hearing from you that they can build on and become more 
you know, we'll call it uh, robust in their thinking about the problem, right? Yeah. Become um, someone who is not only a capable participant, but is somebody that is creating the uh, strategy for success by testing, looking at things qualitatively and quantitatively, and then really building you know, this formula for uh, you know, achievement in their area. Yeah. So now, really uh, interesting. One, one interesting nuance to that, I was having a conversation with a guy named John McMahon. He's a legend in sales. He's really, I would say, the godfather of modern B2B tech sales. And I was talking to him and I said, John, John has his formula as well. It, it conforms to those three parameters that I talked about. And I said, well, John, what if you find a, what if you find a salesperson and they are getting it done? They're delivering the number quarter over quarter consistently, but they're not following the three-part formula. What's more important? And he said, those are the artists and you let them run. He said, here's the thing though. Everybody thinks they know what an artist is. You don't know what an artist is until you've been in the business, until you've really walked in the shoes of the salesperson, until you really figured it out. And one of the big mistakes that people make is they think they've got an artist on their hand. And what they've really got is kind of a, a prima donna, um, mm. immature child. Right. And they're letting them get away with uh, whatever it is they get away with. And it destroys the culture. Right. So he said, I've been around long enough now. I mean, I've been doing this for decades when I do know when I have an artist, but I have a conversation with them and I say, look. I know that you can do the job excellently. I'm going to let you do it your way. I don't want to get in your way, but you need to promise me that you're not going to make a big deal about it and tell everybody else about this because most of the other team isn't at your level and they need help to be able to achieve the success that they want to achieve. And if you go around shooting off your mouth about how you don't have to do that, all of us lose. Yeah, you, you flout the system that everyone else needs to lean on for success yeah. because you don't need to, then you've got a crisis on your hands, right? And people, everyone thinks they're an artist, right? Exactly. Depending on who they're talking to and who's giving them the feedback. So, yeah, um, that's it's really interesting. And I think that, you know, you've got this, uh, it's a very thoughtful um, and pragmatic view of these you know, leaders and, and how they developed into where they are and then how they scale their approach down and uh, create a successful machine out of things. When talking to these folks, whether it be, you know, in, in real time or on your podcast, did you get a sense that they're aware that they have these three components, right? Do they know that, you know, a major determination a major determining factor for their success, at least in your opinion, or maybe others would be that they have this grit component that they have a scalable proven formula and that they are or have learned to be inspiring? They're certainly aware of the fact at this point in their career that, they have, that they're off the chart in terms of grit. Right. I think they've been around enough people. They've worked long enough. They've seen what they're willing to invest versus what other people are willing to invest uh, to know that that's, that's a unique characteristic. They also understand the formula. The reason that they are where they are is right. because they've codified that formula and they've been able to teach it to many people, put it in place and, and reinforce it. So here's the interesting thing about that third dimension, which is inspiration. The first part, which is grit, and the third part, which is inspiration, often work against each other. Okay. If you are a hard driver, and, and this starts with yourself, you demand the best from yourself. You're the you're the person in the office later than anybody else. You're there early in the morning because you want to get it done. But there's this internal fire that keeps pushing you. 
that in many cases makes for a very uninspirational leader. Right. <laughs> and what these, what these successful sales and marketers recognize is it all starts with inspiration. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to lead this team to do their best work if I'm serving up a roster of all the things they need to do and how they need to, to work overtime. And you know, at the end of the day, it's not about overtime. It's about getting people fired up about what they do to deliver their best. And they, they inevitably come to the conclusion that if I'm able to inspire, then they're the ones that are going to provide the fire themselves. Um, great story. Uh, Cedric Pesh, who's the chief revenue officer over at MongoDB. He, as a kid, had a dream. He wanted to be an Olympic skier. He grew up in a, in a ski resort in the Alps. And he had an idol. His name was Jean-Claude Keeley, who okay. was one of the great French skiers. And even as a kid, he would write Jean-Claude postcards. Hmm. He'd be like, hey, come over and visit me. We can ski together. And right. I mean, this is one of the most famous ski personalities in the world. Right. And Jean-Claude <laughs> would send him postcards back. <laughs> and they would say things like, remember, Cedric, the difference between success and failure sometimes is as little as three hundredths of a second. And Cedric would keep these postcards and Cedric just kind of assumed, yeah, well, of course he wrote back because I wrote to him and that's what how it goes. Do. Right. So they started this. They started this relationship, uh, this correspondence and continued it into Cedric's career. At one point, he realized he wasn't going to be the Olympic skier he'd hoped. He got into sales and he was really, he hit a, he hit a low point and he got a letter from Jean-Claude Keeley, who uh, basically once again, inspired him and helped him to pick himself up. And so this was the, this was just an ongoing correspondence that he had. And he, and he kept those, those notes and Cedric was like, I realized in that moment that what made the difference for me wasn't somebody breathing down my neck, standing over my shoulder, telling me what I needed to do. It was someone who believed in me and cared enough about me to send me a postcard when right. I was at my low point. And so he goes on to talk about some really inspiring stories that, uh, that he was able to employ as a leader. And he's like, you know, that was something I had to learn. I had to learn it through being in low points of myself and having people be there. I had to learn it from seeing how people reacted to, you know, how I was as a leader and I got better over time. And today, you know, sometimes people do need a kick in the pants, yep. but um, being attuned to what the person needs. And the, the thing that is the most inspiring about these folks is they're not focused on how much revenue are you generating? Are you, are you hitting your quota? They're focused on, are you living up to your potential? I want to help you to live up to your potential. And that's a message that I think is universally resonant. Yeah, it is. I think everybody wants to be the best that they can, right? Yeah. And you talked about, you know, kind of realizing that you have to be inspirational and that your message has to resonate with your team members. My experience has been sometimes that highly successful people or highly motivated people sometimes have trouble understanding that the people that they work with or the people that they maybe work for or work for them might not have that same exact fire, right? Or that same exact ability, 
right? High performing people sometimes don't have the wherewithal to think not everyone is like me. Just like you mentioned, Cedric thought, hey, you write to a famous skier, everybody gets a response, right? Yeah. There's yeah. almost this, um, uh, it's not a naivete, but there's almost this, this kind of blind spot that, you know, not everyone can do what you can do, right? Yeah. Do people have to realize that that's the case before they can truly connect with a, a diverse audience of people? Because for me, that's always been a block that I've seen people overcoming, they become much more effective. Mm. A couple thoughts come to mind. First of all, it goes yeah. back to that hiring profile. You need to make sure that you've got the right DNA in seat. Now, that doesn't mean that the people that you hire are all going to be those artists that we talked about. There are a lot of hardworking people out there that are at different places in their development. And so as a leader, you have to know is, do I have the right material to work with? If you don't have the right material, um, then uh, you, you have other issues. But assuming you have the right material, I think the second component is you've got to be self-aware. Yeah. Recognize that you're different than those people. What motivates you may not motivate them. And then the third element, uh, a woman named Melissa Murray Bailey, she's the CRO over at Hootsuite right now. She, she shared a great story about when she made her way into sales. She came from Corporate Executive Board, which is a great uh, consulting firm. Everybody's familiar with Challenger Sale, which came out of that organization. Well, she was kind of a consultant, more of a, uh, an account manager thrown into a sales leadership role where hunt hunting was the key requirement mm -hmm. in a different country. And she was like, at that moment, I had to get real with myself and acknowledge that I had the drive. I knew I was smart, but this is the job I didn't really know how to do. And she brought her team together and she kind of came clean with them. And she said, that was hard because my team was like, you're our leader. What right. do we do? But it was a it was a game changing moment for her because collectively that team really gelled and they came up with a solution that allowed her to get the job done. So I think the third component is even though people may not have the drive that you have or the the understanding, people will always respond if you ask them for help. Right. Emerson has a great quote: uh, "Every man is my superior in some way." And great leaders recognize that while they may be off the chart in 90% of the things they do, what is that 10% and how can I go find somebody that is better than me and genuinely ask them? And that's another way to inspire and motivate folks. I think you're dead on right there. And I think it builds a lot of equity with people, especially people that might work with you or work, you know, for you uh, to acknowledge that you might not know something and that you're seeking help or counsel. Um, it's just the acknowledgement that you don't have all the answers, right? I think right. it can build a lot of equity. And I will say that that uh, Melissa Marie Bailey episode is a fantastic one. Now, thinking about just kind of thinking about perpetuating this, right? We have, um, you know, we'll call it a three-part, uh, you know, way or philosophy. Philosophy um, for leaders to drive towards success, or, or just maybe commonalities between really successful CROs and CMOs. If someone in that position that has these three tenets, we'll call them, identifies maybe these skills or traits in someone else, right? How can they best foster those folks to make sure that they're maybe capitalizing or you know really leveraging what they already might know innately? How are they driving to, to them to higher, uh, higher places by nurturing that talent or, or recognizing that they have all the tools? 
Well, there's a, so I'll answer the question, but there's an assumption in the question, which is that you actually can hire or, or identify those people. Right. And in fact, Fair. there, there's a challenge associated with that. One of the things that I have stumbled upon through the course of this podcast is a great indicator of the capacity of a person, the potential of a person is to ask them a, I, I call, this is my magic question, which is simply tell me about a meaningful experience in your childhood that shaped you. Yep. It's a, uh, that shaped you professionally. Now you got to be careful because you don't want to get into um, questions that are going to make the person uncomfortable or, or put right. you and your company at risk. But if you link that back to professionally, um, you're fine. It's a question that people haven't been asked before. So inevitably you're going to see the person pause and think those eyes are going to go up and to the right as their brain is kind of mm. cruising through their memory. And what I find, first of all, is you get a pretty candid answer because they haven't had a chance to prepare it. And based on that answer, you can really discover, well, does this person have some grit? Have they gone through some adversity in their life, which is directly translatable into business? Because that's, that's something that we're all going to face. So um, that gets at the grit question. And then the second part of the formula, part of the equation, which is your formula, I always like to ask a question related to kind of sussing out if this person has a formula for what they do. A lot of times we put theoretical, hypothetical situations on the table. If you were going to try right. to crush your number here at this company, what would you do? That doesn't really help me. So mm -hmm. what I do is I say, walk me through a situation where you had to crush your number. What did you do? Now, I'll be honest, 75% of the people will give you a, a, not a very thorough answer that ultimately gets you to, you know, I crushed my number. The people that have the formula do not hesitate. They will say, oh, there's three things I did. First, I did this. Then I did this. Then I did. They know what it is because right. they've thought about it. They've been deliberate about it. And they don't, it's not a mystery to them while, why they were successful. And they also recognize that, hey, what I'm doing is a little different. What makes it different? So they've been thoughtful about it. And then the last part of the equation, which is inspiring. Again, those are, those are, that's a characteristic that's developed over time. You have some people that have natural charisma. What I really look for there is, is this person curious? They have an appetite for learning. And so the question that I always want them to ask unprompted at the end of the interview is, how'd I do? Do you have any feedback for me? Um, most people don't ask that question. If you ask that question, I guess I'm giving with some of my tricks away. You're going to get an hmm. A plus from me. If they don't <laughs> ask that question, I'll give them some real-time feedback on the call. Listen, I really appreciated this answer. One of the things that was missing for me is this, and I see how they respond. What I want to hear is the person come back at me. Tell me more about that. They are genuinely excited that they just got a nugget of information tip. Yep. and they want to know what they're going to do about it. Um, and, and while that doesn't directly relate to link to inspiration, what it shows me is that they're self-aware that they have an appetite and that they're teachable. Those two characteristics ultimately will lead someone to be inspiring over the long term. Yeah, I agree. I think in general, some level of professional and intellectual curiosity is going to lead to success in some area.
right? Or at least improvement, right? You might not end up in these highest of high seats, but somebody who comes to the problem and is willing to look at it in a new way or think about how they can improve and not only at, you know, face value, but how do they dig in and ask those secondary and tertiary questions to really get the most out of that feedback. Um, I think those types of people tend to, they find their way. Yeah, that's right. All right. So that was the circuitous path to your question, which is what do you do with these people once you have them? And, uh, I, I think there's a couple things I got, I got a great tip, uh, guy named Luca Lazaran who runs sales out at sprinkler. And he said, great leaders inspire first, then they coach, then they inspect mediocre managers inspect. Sometimes they get around to the coaching and they never inspire, but it's in the, it's in the absolute reverse order. Now, inspiring doesn't necessarily mean that you are the person that lights up the stage, you know, when you get up there. I've met quiet leaders who are in- extremely inspiring. I've met introverts and extroverts and people that know how to tell jokes and people that know how to tell stories and people that are numbers driven. That's not what inspiring is. Inspiring is people who genuinely have an interest in you as a human being and want to understand what makes you tick and want to understand where you're trying to go in life and view their mission or purpose as trying to facilitate that journey. Yep. A, a really great um, exercise. I learned this back at LinkedIn, actually. We did this a lot. It's called your bio in seven minutes. Take seven minutes and tell me your life history. Now, if you haven't done this, that seems a little crazy because what are you going to cover in seven minutes? <laughs> you can cover a lot of ground in I seven bet. minutes. And it's not start with your, your professional life. It's like, go back. Like, let's start with you as a kid and and bring me up to the present. And then you do the same thing back to them. So now you've had this exchange. I've worked with people for years and learned less about them that I've learned in seven minutes by doing that exercise. It's, it's really kind of a magical thing that you can do. And I mean, imagine that in 15 minutes, the kind of connection that you can start to make. So that, that formula of inspire first, then coach, then inspect, I think is a great one. Once you do the inspiration and get to know the person you'll know what they want to do. They're probably going to be more open to coaching there. And that's where you start your coaching sessions. And then from there, once you've developed the trust, once they know where you're coming from, you're trying to help them out, then you can get in the inspection of what they're doing. But that comes with time. Yeah. And you got to, you know, once you've earned, I'd imagine, uh, get your thoughts on this, but once you've kind of earned that trust, you got to keep it right? If you said that you're going to make their goals, your goals in some part, right? Hey, if this is what you want to achieve, my goal is going to be helping you to achieve it. You've got to walk the walk, right? You can't then let them down and make it, you know, deprioritize it or make it a short-term mission of yours. Um, I think it probably could be disastrous if you, if you go the other direction, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Listen, Justin, this has been incredible. Um, I really appreciate you coming on this show, sharing so many of the stories that you've had through your podcast and through your career. Um, I think there's a lot of great takeaways here. I found it incredibly uh, interesting um, thinking about those three tenets, grit, formula, and, and being able to inspire as you know foundational leadership characteristics. Um, it's, it's a really interesting lens to look at things through. So um, I think on behalf of my audience and he, everyone here at Talk of the Trade, I want to thank you for coming on and, and, and kind of sharing all this with us. Mike, it's been a ton of fun. Thanks so much for having me.
Thanks so much for the amazing conversation, Justin. We really appreciate it. On our next episode, we're talking with Paul Butterfield, host of the Sales Enablement Society podcast on choosing the right sales methodology for your organization. Here's a sneak peek. And a good methodology is going to set them up to talk about outcomes rather than about the product. And when you do talk about the product, you're talking about it as a verb and not a noun. That's a, that's a big differentiator for most customers. You'll hear that and more on our next episode. In the meantime, thank you again to Justin Schreiber for today's conversation. And don't forget to subscribe to Talk of the Trade on your favorite podcatcher. Talk of the Trade is hosted by Mimeo, the better way to print. Find out more at www.mimeo.com.